Mi'kmaq fish harvesters have been charged for violating federal fisheries legislation. RCMP in Slave Lake, Alberta have killed someone with a taser. Rents in Canada are up 11% on average. Lawyers who settled the First Nations child welfare class action want $80 million in fees. And an update in Palestine and Israel. Good morning. It's Monday, October 16th. I'm Nora and here are your headlines. Fifty-four Mi'kmaq fishermen have been charged or are on trial for fishing in violation of federal regulations, reports Michael McDonald with The Globe and Mail. His reporting relies on journalism from Maureen Gugu, who last month found that the fish harvesters, based in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, have been charged and about one half of them are planning to argue that they have the constitutionally protected treaty right to catch and sell fish when and where they want. Now, 21 years ago, the Supreme Court of Canada affirmed that Indigenous people in Eastern Canada have the right to fish and hunt for, quote, a moderate livelihood, unquote. But McDonald reports that interpretations of what this ruling mean have put the ruling into dispute. In 2020, Sibinakinif First Nation created its own self-regulated lobster fishery. They issued five lobster licenses to members, saying that they could trap and sell outside of the season that is regulated by the federal government. Other Indigenous groups started their own fisheries based on the moderate livelihood principle. But within two years, more than 7,000 lobster traps have been seized by federal authorities. And this year, more than 1,000 traps have already been seized in Nova Scotia. Spokesperson for the Department of Fisheries and Oceans Canada, Laura Sankey, said this, quote, We recognize that fisheries are of great social, cultural, spiritual and economic importance to many Indigenous peoples. And we remain committed to upholding Indigenous fishing rights, including the treaty right to fish for moderate livelihood. Our approach to enforcing the Fisheries Act is based on respect for conservation, transparent and predictable management and reconciliation, unquote. McDonald also talks with law professor Naomi Metallic, who argued that rather than prosecuting these fishermen, they should be negotiating. She said that the treaty right remains, quote unquote, unresolved as clear guidelines or policies have never been developed. People have been told to wait for a solution. But after 24 years, people have decided to just go ahead and create their own fisheries. One of the key issues is the timing of the fishing allowed. The department wants to insist that no fishing occur outside of federally regulated seasons. Some First Nations have refused to sign the agreement that contain this provision, arguing that that Supreme Court decision, which is also called the Marshall decision, doesn't insist on a, quote, one-size-fits-all fishing season. Next to Slave Lake, Alberta, where RCMP there have shot a stun gun at a man while arresting him and it killed him. The man was, quote, acting erratically and damaging property, unquote, according to the police. The article, which is unbylined and in the Canadian press, is written with gold standard police writing, written all in the passive tense like this. They, quote, tried to arrest the suspect, but when he resisted, leading to an altercation and the use of a conductive energy weapon. They say once handcuffs were secured, police noticed the man had become unresponsive and he was later declared dead, despite life-saving measures and assistance from paramedics and fire services, unquote. 
I mean, come on, Canadian press. This is not journalism. He just became unresponsive. They tried to arrest him, but he resisted leading to an altercation. This is not journalism. Say it directly. You might as well say it directly based on the information from the police press release. Or if you're going to say it exactly the way the police have said it, put the information inside quotation marks from the police. Put the whole article inside quotation marks saying this is a police press release. Don't try to fool us. Anyway, ACERT is investigating and no information was released at all about the individual. Next to news from CBC's Pete Evans, who warns us that, quote, Canada's rental market is getting worse, unquote, or what he actually means to say, it has gotten worse, as the report is based on data that came out in September. Rent in Canada climbed by more than 11% when compared to last year. He doesn't mention what the increases were last year, which were also higher than the year before, and so on, making this rental increase seem lower than it actually is. Toronto has, as Evans says, quote, one of the highest rents, unquote, with a one bedroom costing on average $2,614 per month. The average hike in Toronto was lower than 11%. It was 4.9% over last year. Vancouver has the highest rents. Their rents increased by 10% and a two bedroom apartment costs nearly $4,000. The really bad news is that shared accommodation rates have also spiked. They've gone up an average of 27%, with a stunning 78% spike in Ontario. So it's even more expensive to live with roommates. This, I think, is probably because people are desperate and landlords knowing that they can rent these places out for even higher rates, knowing what rent is for a single person or a family in a unit, are just jacking them, and people are having no choice but to accept it. Calgary's rents grew by 13% over last year. Evans talks to Lindsay Tolfson, who rents a two-bedroom apartment for her and her kid. At the start of this year, she paid $1,200 for the place. By next February, she's been told to brace for a 2100 rental payment. That, by the way, is called extortion. Now, Evans says that it's ironic that people flocking to Calgary for cheaper rent have actually pushed rents up, something that he links to the law of supply and demand. Except that when we talk about supply and demand, we forget that the supply side is like 80% united in the pursuit of greed. And the demand side, while they'll scoop up cheaper rentals if they can, they'll also make incredible sacrifices to pay for the landlord's greed. So it isn't so neat to be put into a box as Evans' article makes it sound. The lack of supply, says Evans, is driving up rents in Nova Scotia, which rose by 15%. He talked to someone who works for the website rentals.ca, and he says that even though Nova Scotia's economy is, quote, nowhere near as booming as Alberta's, it's still subject to the same forces of supply and demand, unquote. Now, what Evans doesn't mention is that other market interventions that keep rents low, stuff like making it easier for people to develop co-ops or, you know, building public housing, something that Nova Scotia hasn't done in decades, These things all keep rents low. But hey, if this crisis is driven by some magical thing called supply and demand and not the very intentional force of unmagical greed, well, the only way to solve it is to give developers more money and build more rental units, right? Except that's not the problem here. It's greed. It's the instrumentalization of rental housing to give investors secure returns on their investments. And it's the commodification of a human right. 
Maybe someone should shoot Evans this episode and see if he can explore these forces in future articles rather than just letting a guy from a website explain that it's all just supply and demand. Next, lawyers who argued the historic First Nations child welfare settlement are fighting to be compensated to the tune of $80 million. The $2.3 billion settlement will compensate children and their families for their experiences dealing with the child welfare system on reserve. CBC's Olivia Stefanovic reports that the lawyers say that they're owed $80 million because of the sum of the settlement. They say that they deserve the money because they agreed to only be paid if the agreement was successful. Normally, class action lawyers' fees are paid out of the settlement money itself. But in this case, the money is added on to the amount to not eat into how much money the members of the class are able to receive. Zeus Eden, the press secretary to Indigenous Services Minister Patty Hadju, said that $80 million is too much, equaling so much per lawyer that some will be paid more than $4,500 per hour. They will be negotiating in court to bring this number down. Some 93 legal workers, from partners right down to articling students, worked on the case. Cindy Blackstock, who's been behind the campaign for more than a decade, told Stefanovic that she thought the amount being asked for is quote-unquote unreasonable. This amount of money will lead some law firms to getting millions of dollars, while First Nations families will receive $40,000 at most. And her organization, which was instrumental in this case, has declined any payment. She said this, There needs to be more conversation about the role of class action lawyers in respect to reconciliation and perhaps some more oversight, unquote. $80 million is the cap that the lawyers agreed would be the ceiling on the fees for their work. They argue that if they had sought what is normal under the contingency fee for retainer agreements, they could have asked for up to $2.35 billion. Law professor and expert in class actions, Jasminka Kilechtik, said this, quote, The question of class action lawyers' fees is a lightning rod for controversy, and many people object to the idea of lawyers profiting off of other people's losses. If we're going to have a class action system that works, we really do need to have incentives for lawyers to take on these cases. At the same time, we have to guard against overcompensation. And finally, now to international news. First, just a quick note about Australia's historic referendum on Saturday. It failed. Voters chose no at 60% and it failed in every state. My tiny piece of advice to Australia lawmakers, create something anyway outside of the Constitution. Let people get used to it and then let people vote on it. Maybe that should do it. But the news that we'll focus on today for the final piece is in Gaza. CNN is reporting that, quote, Israel is gearing up for the next state of its war on Hamas. While they don't say what the last phase of the war was, they do say that Israel has murdered more than 2,600 people. And the death toll from Hamas's attacks last week are around 1,400 people. Israel is building up its military forces on the border with Gaza and has told 1.1 million people in the north of Gaza to evacuate. But Israel has already started bombing northern Gaza, having hit 250 targets yesterday alone, mostly in northern Gaza. Here is what CNN says, quote, despite Israel's withdrawal from Gaza since 2007, it has maintained tight control over the territory through a land, air and sea blockade. For nearly 17 years, Gaza has been almost totally cut off from the rest of the world with severe restrictions on the movement of goods and people. They add that Israel believes that the blockade is, quote, vital to protect its citizens from Hamas, which, I don't know, after the horrifying attack last week, seems like not a super strong argument for the continued blockade. 
Israeli President Benjamin Netanyahu has invited U.S. President Joe Biden to visit, something that apparently has no imminent date, but that people in both offices are discussing. Meanwhile, the United Nations Relief Work Agency's Philip Lazzarini says this, quote, Gaza is being strangled, and it seems that the world right now has lost its humanity. If we look at the issue of water, we all know water is life. Gaza is running out of water, and Gaza is running out of life, unquote. There have been reports that Israel was going to restore water access in southern Gaza, something that Lazzarini says that the agency wasn't able to confirm. If there is to be water turned back on, he understood that it would be for either all or half of Khan Yunus, which would not reach south of Khan Yunus or Rafa. But he then restated the folks on the ground have not been able to confirm this information. Before this war, 60% of Gazans relied on international relief assistance for food. 14 members of the UN agency have been killed by Israel. And here is a rundown on international reactions. The UN has called on Hamas to release its hostages and for Israel to allow immediate and unimpeded access to Gaza. Jordan has accused Israel of, quote, blatant violations of international law, unquote. The EU seems to officially be more focused on Hamas than on Gazans. Saudi Arabia has called for the siege to be lifted. The United States has, quote, pledged steadfast support for Israel, unquote. Iran has called for an immediate end to bombing residential areas of Gaza. And Egypt's Sisi has said that the attack has gone beyond the right of self-defense and now looks like collective punishment of the people of Gaza. CNN didn't mention Canada and our little brother act to the United States Department of Foreign Affairs. Those are your headlines for Monday, October 16th. I'm Nora. Hey, everybody who I met this past weekend who said they love the Daily News, thank you so much. I'm so happy to hear it. I love making the Daily News. And for you, I made an extra special, extra long one today. No, just kidding. There's just lots of news. Just that's how it, that's how it turned out. You are listening to this podcast at sandyandnora.com on the Real News Network podcast feed and wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you have a wonderful Monday. I hope you're staring down a wonderful week and I'll talk to you tomorrow morning.